Welcome back to What We Don't Know. I'm your host, Xander Schultz. I'm here with Phineas. What's happening, Phineas? Oh, not much, Xander. How are you today? Doing fine, man. Who do we have on the show this week? Legitimately, I know I'm an excitable person that <laughs> pr- prone to hyperbole, uh, but Charles Booker, who's, who's this week's guest, is quickly becoming one of my favorite people in American politics. Uh, I'm so happy we got a chance to really sit down with him and you know, we got a good amount of time with him to dig deep on so many interesting things he's experienced over the last 12 months. Yeah, he. I first heard about him when he hit the national stage with his most recent run for Senate, trying to unseat Mitch McConnell, yep. ultimately losing the primary to Amy McGrath, yep. one of the most funded campaigns in the history of politics. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Record-breaking. Record-breaking. I think uh, we, we were just talking about, but I think the Warnock-Ossoff campaigns in Georgia are going to break her record if they haven't already, just because all of the world's focus is there. But in terms of like a Senate campaign in the midst of many Senate campaigns, it broke all the records. So what initially drew you to Charles Booker? Why did you think he would be somebody that would be a good fit to come on the show? I mean, look, he had three different what we don't know <laughs> in one, really. You know, I wanted to understand what it takes to mount a senatorial campaign, right? As a local activist going up against what people, you know, would maybe describe McGrath as, which is like this this uh, monster of like the DNC machinery and this like coastal progressive idea of what Kentucky voters want. And monster's not fair because it's not like she's a bad person, <laughs> but 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 she became this like massive obstacle to, to try to overcome for Charles. Uh, largely funded by people outside of her state. Then he's, you know, one of the leading activists in Louisville when this Breonna Taylor tragedy strikes there. And his leadership is really what uh, skyrockets him out of kind of the also-rans that were trailing Amy McGrath by, you know, a ton to a real competitor that almost won that primary and just get a sense of what the atmosphere is like in Louisville. What do we not know about what's going on there? Breonna Taylor was the center of the universe, you know, for for a little bit there and, and remains one of the central stories to what became one of the largest social justice movements in history. And then lastly, right behind Trump, Mitch McConnell is probably the closest thing we have to a real life boogeyman, <laughs> at least on the progressive side. I want to understand how does a person like this gain and maintain power and what's it like going up against him and plotting to go up against him and and what is the path to unseating this, um, in my opinion, of course, terrible guy. Absolutely. And so the thought that he put into winning a Senate seat in Kentucky is the same type of thought and conversations we need to start having nationally if we're going to start really creating a uh, significant majority that's going to pass real progressive policy. Anyways, I'm really excited. One, I'm excited for the show, obviously, and to share him and, and his wisdom with you know our listeners. But I'm, I'm also just really broadly just excited about his continued growth as a national political figure and, and assisting him in any way we can uh, as he continues to play a leading role in creating a more just, more equitable country. Absolutely. All right, let's get into it. (music) 
I'll throw it to you, man. What do we not know about your senatorial run and, you know, what surprised you or what you learned during it? Man, well, first of all, thank you, brother, for what you do and for seeing people like me and for understanding the deeper work we have to do. I'm honored to be in it with you. And um, right on. I'm, I'm excited about this platform, man. This is this is our chance to tell the story um, and shine a light on stuff that people don't typically get to see. And, um, you know, to your question about what's being missed. Honestly, I hope Hood to the Holler as an organization can help answer that um, because it it really does reflect what we captured in my Senate campaign, which was an opportunity to talk about structural racism and gross inequity and true progress in places that have typically been defined um, in a very extreme partisan lens and in places that have been very uh, separated and isolated. And it was really a culmination of all of that because in Kentucky, you know, it's largely called Trump country. Mm-hmm. It's it's called a red state. When you see a lot of the negative stereotypes, they typically land on Kentucky. And for us to be able to shine a light about how people in Appalachia and the hollers are fighting for real progress, are fighting for structural change, want everybody to have health care, want everybody to have sustainable incomes and create wealth, and how folks in the hoods where I'm from are fighting for justice and equity and, and true empowerment for everyone to tell that story really surprised a lot of people. Right. And uh, it was surreal to see it happen. And we can't miss that anymore because that's where the change is going to come. Do you think there's a misconception that because there's a lot of Trump supporters somewhere, therefore the Democratic message that can win needs to be a centrist message versus actually the, the messaging that could that could win is a very progressive message just because there's a lot of you know far right or you know Trump country supporters or MAGA supporters out there doesn't mean then the democratic message needs to be centrist do, do you feel like that's a misconception that you felt showed during your your candidacy absolutely i mean first of all that is completely divorced from the reality of the challenges people are facing and right. i really wanted to take that head on so much so that we had a green new deal tour in Appalachia. I wanted to show folks that you can talk about real, true, sustained progress in places where folks are are voting 98 plus percent uh, for Donald Trump and, and really flip on this ear the idea that these things are partisan. Having clean water, clean air, sustainable jobs, internet that's not crap, these things are not partisan. And, right. you know, and, and it really boiled down to us being able to talk about our values and to put a, a, a face, a human face, a, a real story of some context behind the policies. And when you build relationships and, and you gain trust because you're authentic and people know you mean what you say, it gives you the room to right. work on policies and to build coalitions that people didn't think were possible. And so, you know, my message was really progressive and, and, and honestly um, populist in, in a lot of ways. And Trump spoke to that. I think there's a an issue because coastal progressives are ideological. They're not really, a lot of what they're voting on isn't fixing their need, but rather a need they think the country has, right? And so there may be a sense of like, well, we're very ideologically progressive. This place votes red, so they must be less ideologically progressive versus what you're talking about is that actually 
the same things you're championing as an ideology, you know, these hyper progressive ideas are actually what solves these people's problems. Like MAGA supporters problems are solved by very progressive policy. You know, I think it all boils down to whether we really want things to change or not. Like, are we okay with the status quo? And mm-hmm. for folks like me that, you know, come from a struggle, grew up in poverty, living in one of the poor zip codes in Kentucky, we don't have a choice but to fight for change. It, it, this is about survival. And, and I think that was what helped break down these barriers of ideology, because when I'm talking about Medicare for all, the universal basic income, it's not because it's a talking point. It's solving your problem. Yeah, it's solving a real problem. And when you put it in real terms, it's hard to refute. And, and, and what we saw were folks that voted for Trump organizing on my campaign because those facts of this is actually going to help them in real terms. Like, I feel like we've given up on this whole like MAGA contingency. I, I feel like it's one of the great progressive mistakes. Like we're going for like the central wealthy Republicans. Actually, the, the MAGA folks, I feel like are more winnable with the right narratives. What was most effective getting a Trump supporter to become a Charles Booker supporter? The most effective thing that I saw was when I would just show up in what I believe and I stood on mm. it. Um, it wasn't trying to speak anyone else's language. It was just mm-hmm. being my authentic self and still showing up. Like in, in, in a lot of places, the response would be, well, no one's ever come to talk to us. We never even have a chance to have this type of conversation. And so wow. when I come and, and I talk to them the same way I'm talking to you, you know, I'm going to call out structural racism everywhere I go because it is everywhere. And to just show up in that space and say, I love you, but I'm going to tell you some truth. Folks like, well, well, damn, why don't more people do that? We respect me enough to tell me the truth. And I'm hoping that more folks across the country realize that this is not about running to some sort of soft center and like not really taking a position. It's actually about having a position and having a vision. And you can talk about inequity in a way that brings everybody in because it affects everybody. And when you do that, people are like, well, thank goodness, it's a real person really talking about me. I'm going to support them. What did you feel like, like misconceptions you were running into talking to Trump supporters that you're like, damn, because we're not talking to them and because Trump and his allies and Mitch and these guys are talking to them, we really have a lot of work to do in X, Y, and Z areas because this is so deeply misunderstood or, 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 or not understood at all. Yeah. You know, the thing that hurt me the most is um, it brought back a lot of the same types of trauma and frustrations I feel growing up in the West and the Louisville, which is which is the hood. Folks feel ignored. They feel invisible. They feel like they don't matter, that nobody cares about them. And as soon as someone shows up and acts like they care in, in, in the space of a politician saying, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z for you, they took a chance because they didn't have any other choices. And in a lot of these places like Kentucky, Democrats don't even try. And, and that was the thing that hurt me the most is that it's not because we really have these deep disagreements. Majority of issues, we're fighting the same battles. I mean, mm. wedges are being put in place to keep us apart from one another and they're being exploited. But the fact is, we have so much more in common. As soon as we speak to that and show up and stand in that, the coalitions are ready. They're ready. And we, we show proof of that here in Kentucky. How often did you run into one of those in progressive politics? There's very two very clear ones in my mind, that which is like these single issues that doesn't feel like any progressives is ready to budge on. And yeah. it feels like there's there's a lot of voters out there. Abortion and, and gun control both come to mind. Yeah. Are we overinflating how many of those folks there are based on your experience? And 
when you ran into those folks, were you able to, were you able to move any of them? I wonder how those conversations went because those are such important yeah. conversations nationally. Yeah. Well, you know, those, those wedge issues are very intense here in Kentucky. I'm, I'm in the state house. Um, some of the priority legislation that Republican leadership were putting forward were about banning abortion, not about uh, hunger, not about housing, not about people losing their jobs and unemployment at historic levels, but about banning abortion. And, you know, one of the things that I, I noticed and, and I believe is a path forward is we have to be willing to disagree. We have to be able to show up with what we believe in and have these our core values put forward in our vision. And what what I would do in showing up is saying that, look, I'm not asking you to agree with me on everything. Mm -hmm. Here's what I stand for. And here's why I'm fighting for you. Here's why I give a damn about you. Because this affects my family. And and when you come from that place, people respect you. I was able to get bipartisan legislation passed in the House with folks that vote differently than me on most everything because mm -hmm. I showed up with my integrity and, and we found our common bonds. And and it's possible. It really is possible. Have you felt like at the state level, it feels like at the national level, there's a real strategy of just like pass nothing, make them look incompetent and you know, and and grab power. Is that not happening as often at the state level? Are, are you? Are, is there still a lot more room for those types of conversations there? There is more room, but in Kentucky in particular, Mitch McConnell, just say the guy's name, controls so much of what happens at the state level. Wow. And so our politics, and I think Republicans have effectively done this across the country, they have nationalized so many of these wedge issues in particular that they're essentially able to stranglehold state legislatures. The truth of the matter is, though, when we're in our caucuses or when we're talking, we agree on the majority of things like there is so much we could do. But when it goes through that filter of national politics, people go into their corners and they stop listening. And, you know, the only way I believe we change that is by activating more people to demand more accountability, more regular folks to run for office and lead for change ourselves. And that's why I launched Hood to the Holler, because we need this type of structural change. I want to talk to you a little bit about, look, you were at the center of, during your senatorial run, at the center of one of the most notable uh, happenings in racial justice in the country with uh, Breonna Taylor. One, I want to hear like wh what we don't know about that situation in general and, and that movement and, and where it's at now. And two, you then had a lot of conversations around racial justice with people across Kentucky uh, when Brianna was the center of the nation's attention. And I want to hear how those conversations went and, and how, how speaking to folks who might have not gotten it at first, what was effective in helping them get it? Well, you know, to speak to the, the second part first, um, because it, it's what really inspires me, you know, when, when things sort of uh, reached the national stage and everyone started watching Kentucky and seeing how we were going to respond to the murder of Breonna Taylor. The response is what really gave me hope. We saw people from all walks of life, all parts of Kentucky being introspective, you know, taking it in, personalizing it and saying that we have to do things differently. Um, and because I'm in the throes of a Senate campaign, you know, and I'm lifting this story up in a deeper sense, it gave me the chance to have a lot of conversations with a lot of different people. And, you know, I would be called on by, you know, parts of Kentucky where it's like 99% white. And they would say, Charles, mm -hmm. can you come sit with us to talk to us about how we should, how we should do our part? We've never done that before. Was like, that inspiring getting that call? Like getting calls like that? I imagine it was. It's the most inspiring thing. I mean, short of being a dad, man, when I was in parts of East Kentucky where I'm like the only black person and, you know, we marching down the street 
saying no lives matter till black lives matter. And I'm seeing like little old white ladies putting their fists in the air. Like, <laughs> like, around, like, am I getting it right? I mean, right, it, was, right. it was the most powerful thing I've ever experienced. And it is real in Kentucky. And I feel like the world never thought we could, we could come together like this. Yeah. And I, and I hope more people know that now. And, you know, as far as Brianna, you know, so much of her story has in our grief, our trauma has been laid out before the whole world to see, but one thing that, you know, I try to share about her so much is like she really cared about other people. And I think about this pandemic, she'd be helping everybody right now. Right. She'd be checking in on folks. And I share a lot. And Xander, you, you've heard some of my story. I've, I've had five cousins murdered the last four years. My cousin TJ, who was murdered on Easter Sunday a couple of years back, was really good friends with Brianna. And I just remember her being a support for him when he was wrongly arrested and put in jail for something he didn't do. She was selfless. And and I think that's why so many people have been able to take a stand, because if someone like her, who was committing her life to helping everybody else. Right. You can't spin her story as, you know, somehow she was putting herself in a bad position or whatnot. It's impossible to spin it. Everybody felt like, like she was their cousin or that she was one of their relatives. And, um, I'm grateful for her, her helping us even right now to see ourselves and, and we owe it to her to keep fighting. It's really, it's really, really, really powerful. It's probably uh, silly for me to go through a whole conversation with you that we're going to share widely without talking about Mitch and, and what we don't like. People know broadly he's bad news, right? Like at this point, uh, or at least progressives do. What do people not fully understand about Mitch McConnell and the need to remove him from power? Man, what people really don't get, um, and, and even to this day, because folks will keep saying, well, why does Kentucky vote for Mitch McConnell? He's so bad. Nobody likes Mitch McConnell. Like You cannot find Democrat, Republican, Independent. People do not <laughs> like this guy in Kentucky. So it's not a question of why are they just, why they vote for a bad person. You have to understand how, one, how disenfranchised and marginalized people are in, in our Commonwealth. And how he intentionally exploits that. He has built himself into an institution where he has his footprint on essentially every part of Kentucky just so he can keep us crippled. In what way? What do you mean when you say that? Well, you know, for instance, he has created like there's a McConnell Scholars program at the University of Louisville. Um, like he'll he'll put his brand on things right. off, off Kentucky and he uses his political power to essentially drown out anyone that would criticize or compete with him. He crushes people below him and he has a brand of doing it. And so seeing that for generations, like there really has been a sense of hopelessness, like nothing will ever change. And, and I think that's why you saw so much bipartisan excitement, nonpartisan. I mean, folks from all walks were really getting excited for my campaign because they finally felt like we have a fighting chance to get rid of this guy. He profits from everything that hurts us the most. It, it's like being in a relationship where you know, you don't feel like you have any options because the person yeah. who knows everything is also the one that is abusing you. Do you worry the way that McGrath lost? It was like 10 points plus, I think, in, in Kentucky. Do you worry that people will lose that thread just because of how poorly her campaign did against Mitch? Well, you know, I think campaigns that, that sort of use that model of not really engaging and investing on the ground and, you know, just sort of leaning into this like really um, neutral space where you're not taking positions. You're just putting a whole lot of ads out there. You're conceding the narrative. 
you're letting like the Mitch McConnell's of the world dictate what we talk about. So now defunding the police is a big, scary, terrifying thing as right. opposed to reallocating resources uh, that we desperately need. That does hurt. Like when you continue to do that, not only is it causing us to lose, but I think it's crushing the spirit of people that genuinely want things to change. Right. You know, I, and that it is something that we're going to have to overcome. Uh, we can't keep doing the same thing and expect things to be different. They're going to get worse. I hope the lesson is not, this is not a winnable fight. It's This was not a winning strategy. Right. You can't just advertise from afar and hope it works. I guess, I wonder what your thoughts are. I know I've started to take on this policy when people ask me to donate to candidates that are outside of my area. I ask them who the organizers are in that area and I'll donate to the organizers. Honestly, partially because of how your campaign turned out. I wonder just what your reaction was from facing a primary challenger that raised such an incredible amount of money based on like this mythological Kentucky voter right? <laughs> that had been built up. And if you had thoughts around like reforms you'd like to see because of that or any other thoughts you have from going through that experience. Well, you know, I think a big takeaway that I hope we all collectively have is that you can't buy a movement. And money does not replace people as much as some would like for it to. Um, and you have to invest on the ground. Like we don't have infrastructure that allows us to mobilize folks on the things we believe in. And so many of the issues we fight for are for the people that are hurting the most. And if they aren't empowered, if they don't have the tools to lead themselves, we don't have the coalition. And therefore, we concede to these folks that are exploiting all of our pain and trauma and, and laughing to the bank. And so I think your response is the right response. And, and I think the reason that people were supporting my campaign, certainly going down uh, the final stretch, was that we built it from a place of organizing. Like I, I, I'm in politics out of survival. I don't come from this stuff. Neither one of my parents graduated high school. Right. This is out of survival and organizing is what I do to make ends meet, to make sure that things are better in my community. And we applied that to the campaign. There's such a fundamental difference between uh, organizing and campaigning as well. Because in organizing is really, you know, you're like the concierge service. You're like, yo, what's your problem? How can I help? Versus let me get you over here. I need you, you to go from here to here, which is, is just such a different relationship. One thing that's curious to me, though, because Mitch McConnell doesn't strike me as someone that should have a great ground game. He's like an 80-year-old white dude. That, like, what does Republican infrastructure look like? Like, I know what your infrastructure looks like, right? I think people now, especially from the George Floyd protests and everything, we're getting an idea of what organizing is. Right. What does Republican infrastructure or Mitch McConnell's infrastructure look like? Yeah, it's well, it's not people centered. And, and that's what ours is. Um, that's real yeah. organizing. Um, it's, it's really centered on um, exploiting folks and, and leveraging power uh, to keep people divided and to keep them suppressed and oppressed. So it's a model. And that's why you see these wedge issues that always they use fear, a fear of other. So they're taking folks pain from the losses they're feeling and they channel it mm. fear and hatred for someone else. Which is a narrative we like understand. Like the bad guy narrative is so core in so much of our storytelling. It's just an easier thing to sell folks on. And the, the more nuanced answers of creating social safety nets, et cetera, it's just, a, it's just a harder narrative to sell when someone's pitching the other thing. And I, you see it a lot in Trump. Like Trump really tucked this model and like tuck it to the next level and really made a mockery yeah. of all of them. But he's exploiting it. When you hear him talk, he sounds like a victim. Totally. But the people that support him don't hear him as a victim. And yeah. because they have cast 
you know, someone else as the problem that they need to fight, there's a common value, a common core of like fighting for what you believe and like fighting for your home and your family. And Republicans have been able to just own that narrative. So they get to complain and still sound like they are the ones that are fighting back. At <laughs> right, right. And, and as soon as we introduce this idea of nah, uh, what's actually happening is we're getting robbed. They're cheating us. They're taking away from us. We're going to take it back. Like, we, and, and that's a part of that populist message. Like when you start to talk to folks from a standpoint of you're not weak, you're not crying because you need help. You're, you're tired of people robbing you. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, you're right. We're going to fight for that. And so I think we need to take some lessons out of how they've built their infrastructure yeah. over the years, but do it for good. It reminds me of like what allowed Bernie to be somewhat effective is Bernie didn't say like the tax codes fucking you. He's like, millionaires and i can't do the, like the new york jewish accent but millionaires and billionaires right he like he pointed to a bad guy as well and it's just like fraction and fraction a fraction of the population it's a par part of the population that you're not worried at all that will be oppressed anytime soon so it's also a safer it's a safer audience to cast that shadow at but you're right like part of it was bernie simplified it as well he's like sure there's bad guys this is who they are though and there's not that many of them and and it really landed phineas and i were just talking about these like postmortems after elections and we try to like learn all these things that happen but there's all these counterfactuals we we didn't play out like we don't know what bernie looks like in a general like that type of aggression and uh na simple narratives that we all can also cast one, did that land for you? Did you feel like Bernie's messaging kind, kind of did a good job of kind of taking Trump's playbook in some ways? Not that Bernie was probably copying Trump, but taking that what's effective of Trump's message and, and, and using it for a progressive platform? Yeah, I, well, I think it did. I mean, I, I think it was to your initial point. I was sort of talking about how you sort of reversed the narrative about what the fight is really about. Mm -hmm. And I think that gave folks a chance to you know, be to feel like their identity was accounted for and that someone was speaking about them. And now we know who we're up against and who we're fighting. Right. And of course, I, I endorsed uh, Senator Sanders. One of the takeaways I, I felt, though, is we have to dig in more on, on racism at a, a very structural level. We can't just shirk away from it and have this be defined solely as a conversation of class uh, because racism is an economic construct. And part of the solution requires us to deal with that. Um, I think he helped create space. I mean, I think others help create space, but we have the responsibility to really wrap our arms around that and prioritize that. That conversation is one I'm, I really look forward to continuing to have with you, you know, over the years as we figure all this stuff out. I do think you're hitting the nail on the head, first and foremost, before we figure out what the message is of just talking to people and that being so key and not giving up on large swaths of the population. And I, I really, you know, you talking about that old woman in Kentucky putting up her fist and everything like that. The idea that that is possible with conversation and presence is like one of the more inspiring things I've heard this whole year. Uh, and I truly believe it too. I think the solution is proximity. Like we just got to get proximate to each other. We live in a freaking huge country that's that's designed to not create proximity. Yeah. Um, and so strategically creating that does feel like it's the source of so many answers. All right, man. Well, I thank you for your time. Thanks for jumping on. Before we jump, is there anything you want to share? Like before before we jump off, anything that that's on your mind? Yeah. Well, the only thing that I would would say beyond I appreciate you, man, is, you know, we have an opportunity to really dig in um, in places like Kentucky. And what I'm lifting with Hood to the Holler, this organization I founded, is really the chance to do this deeper, consistent relational organizing that can build more people power so that when the next election cycles come around, folks are active, they're engaged, they're running campaigns, 
they're running themselves and we're really creating what democracy is supposed to mean. And I'm just asking people to join us in that work, um, to go to hoodtotheholler.org and, and see about ways to get involved in fighting structural equity and poverty on the ground. Right on, man. Appreciate you so much, man. Sending you love and uh, let's keep up the conversation. Absolutely, brother. Talk to you soon. Later. Thank you for listening to What We Don't Know. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. You can also follow us on social. We're WWDKpod on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. All right, take care.